Amen. Hey, if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 126, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. Psalm 126, as we seek to learn, learn from God's Word about what joy looks like in our lives. And so this week, as I sat down to discover joy and, and, and what it means for us in the midst of these things, uh, you know, you can find a number of things, uh, some of them profitable, uh, maybe. If you just enter a simple Google search, man, where can joy be found in 2020? And uh, you're probably not all that surprised. There are a number of places where culturally uh, we are said to be able to find joy that if that's what you set your hope on, if that's your only recourse, uh, you're, you're going to end up with a lot of stuff, probably not a ton of joy. Uh, some of the interesting ones I thought this week were uh, instructions to buy houseplants, uh, to put them around your house, it'd give you something industrious to do. Uh, for me, that's just like putting something on a death sentence. Here you go. You're consigned to die. Thank you. You've been a great $10 sacrifice. I'll see you when I find you brown. And then I shall return you unto the ground. I just, just made that up. I, I like the way that it goes, though. We're the Hallmark folks. And so a number of different things that they said would bring you joy. One of them I thought was incredibly helpful is just the idea of being nice to people. I guess the idea therein is that if we're nice to people, they're nice to us, and we have a whole movement of people uh, being nice instead of partisan, and so maybe we could try that. But as we look at Psalm 126, joy is situated on the person of God. Joy is situated on the person of God. It's what we see in verses 1 through 3 is a, a past reflection of what God has done for them. And then verses 4 through 6 turn and reflect on their current circumstances. And they call for God's interaction. They call for God's investment in them so they can have a return to this experience of joy. But as we turn to consider what God has for us here in Psalm 126, we recognize the, the, the background likely of what we see in here is this soon returned or, or uh, rapidly returned group from the exile. And so you'll remember that Judah is taken into exile by the Babylonians, that they are held there uh, by 70 years. And in the midst of this, what we read from the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verses 10 through 14 are these words. He says, for thus says the Lord. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So it's a promise of return. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. So it was God's plan and his purpose to send his people into exile so that they would experience sorrow, so they would experience his justice. But then his word, even in sending them in there, is that I'm going to bring you back. And so what is he calling them to do? He's not calling them to situate their hopes and to situate their future joy and their present experience of joy on something outlandish, but he's calling them to situate their joy on him and on his 
promises. Well, we begin to see his promises uh, come to be realized in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to do what? To build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And so what God does is he uses this heathen king to create a highway, to create an avenue for his people to be returned to the land. And this is what they're reflecting on. So let's read Psalm 126, verses 1 through 6 together. The psalmist writes and says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He, goes out, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Would you join me as we pray once more? God, my prayer for us this morning is that you would show us clearly, that you would touch us deeply, exposing all the various areas of our hearts where we sought to prop ourselves up with joy that won't last. God, too many of us find joy solely in our relationships with others. We find joy in our jobs. We find joy in our success. God, some of us in the midst of this, we find joy in our endurance, just thinking we are joyful and it'll be over. God, it is, it is your delight, it is your pattern that we would derive our joy from you. You've given us so many things to enjoy in this life. So many things that make our life richer, so many things that we might enrich the lives of those around us with. But true and lasting joy you have determined can only ever be found in you and in our relationship with you. So God, for some of us, I pray that in the midst of what has been a truly joyous experience, that you would cause our hearts to be warmed by a promise of joy received. God, by others of us, right now we are propped up by temporary joy. God, I pray that you would kick that joy out from underneath us, that we would fall on our faces before you in worship, and that in you, we would receive a joy that doesn't disappoint. God, would you cause our joy to be evident and seen? Would you cause our joy to be settled on you? God, would you give us joy even in the midst of this time of study that we have together, this time of fellowship in which we are given to worship you? We submit these things to you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So for 70 years, they're, they're stuck in Babylon. They're trapped in a foreign land. They've lost homes. They've lost family members. They've lost just kind of this regular routine of life. And so they have a sense at which the, the joy has been redefined. Joy has been repurposed. Joy has really just kind of been lowered a little bit so that the bar of what brings joy has been set a little bit lower 
And in the midst of that lowered expectation, in the midst of that difficulty, they received stunning news. Now, in their minds, they always kind of had this idea that the promise of God was to bring them back into the land. But it rolls around in our minds whenever there's a promise that's delayed, that's held off, is, is that promise really going to come to fruition? Are these things really going to work out? Or is this just something to kind of tide us over? Was this just meant to be something to satisfy us for a moment, to make us quit whining, to make us quit complaining? And in the midst of this kind of self-evaluation, in the midst of this kind of self-determinative, I'm not really sure, is he going to do something? Bam, they get returned to the land. Cyrus opens it up, Ezra uh, comes back, and they are in the land. And his response in the midst of these things is, this can't be happening. This is the coolest thing in the world. This can't be happening. Oh, I remember this house. Oh, I remember this. And just kind of walking around just like, yo, we are back in the land. Everybody's like, I know we're back in the land. And then Tuesday he wakes up and he knocks on the door. He says, yo, we are back in the land. And they say, we know we're back in the land. And on Wednesday he comes to the door again and he knocks on their door. He says, we are back in the land. They're like, yes, we're back in the land. But like two months later he knocks on the door and he says, we're back in the land. They're like, what now? He says, we're back in the land. They're like, yeah, yeah, we're back. But in the early days, when they first got returned, it was this ecstatic state of dreamlike existence, being washed daily with this pure experience of the joy of the Lord. Because the thing they experienced was nothing they could have done on their own. This thing they experienced was nothing they could have uh, brought to bear because of their own ingenuity and their own cleverness. They were like those who dream. And this is what the joy of the Lord feels like. A true experience and in, in, in delighting in the joy of the Lord is difficult for us to articulate because it doesn't make sense out of the experience of Christ. They go in to describe themselves physically. They said, in this moment when it was like we were dreaming, our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. It was like this perpetual Super Bowl victory where they just ran around high-fiving people. We're back. Are you back? I'm back. Everybody would say, we're back. It's like they walk down the streets and everybody's just overcome with joy and they just can't stand it because they're so incredibly excited. And everybody they run into and everybody that's back in the land with them has this same sense of experience. They're overcome with joy. And so it's bubbling out of themselves and so they find themselves in the midst of these things not with a <laughs> giddy laughter but with just this chortling belly up. Ha 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 ha! We're back! They didn't wear masks and so it wasn't muffled. They're back in the land and they're overjoyed and they said, our mouths are prone to shouting. This is what God has done to us. He has overflowed our joy and it spills out everywhere we go. This is their experience of the Lord. This is their experience of what it looks like for God to visit his people and to bestow upon them joy. Y'all, their joy was so full, so replete, that when people saw them that didn't worship the Lord, they'd say, look, I see the joy in them. I see the joy in them. And so they'd walk up and they'd be out in the community and they'd be in the father and the countries around them and the nations would say, look at all these smiling people. Look at all these people that are just overcoming, these people that just whistle all the day long. They're like, like <whistles> you know, they're just whistling while you walk, not even while you work. They're whistling while they sleep. They're whistling all the time because they are enraptured with the joy of the Lord. This is who they are. 
I want you to think about how incredibly pervasive, how incredibly overflowing this joy is. Surrounded by nations who have no reason to give any credit to God. Surrounded by nations who have, in fact, a hatred and an animosity towards God. This is what they say of them. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for them. Now listen, they were forcibly removed from their homes. They were taken into exile. God has supernaturally worked things to restore them to the land. And in the midst of these things, they're so incredibly overcome with joy that everyone who sees them doesn't just say they're decidedly happy people, they're decidedly upbeat people. These are incredibly optimistic people, but it's so, so full, so vibrant that there's no other explanation to say God has done great things for them. So think about what that joy might look like in your life. Joy in the midst of sorrows, joy in the midst of difficulties, joy in the midst of setbacks. Think about your current experience and the way that you're currently living your life. And whether or not the full measure of God's joy at work in you, Christian, causes the people around you to stop and say, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord is doing great things for them. You see, in the midst of the nation saying this thing about them, they turn in the past and said of themselves, the Lord has done great things for us. We are, the NIV renders it this way, filled with joy. Now, the ESV says we are glad, but it really paints this idea that God has invested in them joy. He's placed over inside of them joy. They are a container for the joy of God, and it flows out of their lives, and it spills out of their mouths, and everybody around them recognizes God's goodness and the joy that he has visited upon them. But their joy is going stale. Their joy is no longer a delight. Their joy has been on the shelf too long with a lid off of it a little bit too long. So they open it, smell it, and say, whoo, that was a vintage joy. Let me set that back on the shelf. We recognize that our lives are not too dissimilar. Think back just for a moment when you first came to faith in Jesus, okay? When you first came to faith in Jesus, a couple things you recognized. You're horribly far from God. And without God's intervening grace in your life, if he does nothing, you're headed for an eternity separated from his love. You're destined, the Bible says, for a place called hell, forever separated from him. But in that moment, he came near to you. His grace and his mercy, they found you. And you were made alive. Ephesians 2 said, you're dead in your sins and your trespasses in which you once walked. But God, he found you. And he didn't find you in that moment and have this exchange of kind of rational process of, you know, hey, if you just uh, entrust to be your sin, I'll give you this uh, incredible investment of life and riches forever. And you're like, sounds like a good deal. Where do I sign? No. In that moment, he finds us on our knees. He finds us broken. 
And there's this cosmic exchange whereby we surrender our sorrows and he bathes us in his joy. In that moment, the joy of our salvation overflows because we recognize what an incredible gift God has given us in salvation. But over the course of our Christian life, we take our eyes off a gracious God who gives and we place our eyes on the difficulties of life around us. And what we find in some sense is this exchange for the joyous grace which God has given us in exchange for the mundane of life in the ordinary. And this is really akin to the, to the situation they find themselves in. They're still back in the land, but the land is hard. They're still back in the land, but the land hasn't been worked in a number of years. There are rocks in the fields. Buildings that used to be there are destroyed. They've got to rebuild the temple. They don't have the resources they once had before. They don't have the notoriety they once had before. They're back in the land, but now they really just want something more. But what they recognize in this is it not that they need something more, but what they need is a fresh experience of the Lord and his investment in their lives. So this is why they turn and they say in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. They relate their current plight and their present difficulties and they, they, they imagine that they are like this, this desert wasteland in which it receives just a couple inches of rain. It's just overflowing with water. In just a short instant, God transforms this desert place to be flowing with streams of water. And they recognize this is how they need the Lord as well. And this is how the Lord shows up. Their faith and security rests in a God who's able to transform their lives, not in degrees and not slowly, but he is able to transform their lives in an instant. And this is what they want. This has been their past experience, and this is what they want for their future. Transform our lives. Do something miraculous. Do something amazing. We want this fresh experience of God's joy once again. Now, it's important for us as we look at this, we recognize in verse 4, they know they need the Lord. They recognize that there's no amount of industriousness, no, no amount of kind of work, there's no amount of positive attitudes whereby they can return themselves and return the land to be productive. And so their first request is that, Lord, God, we need God, we need you to come and act. We need you to do something that when everybody sees it happens, they would say, this is the Lord's doing, they could never do this on their own. But just as they ask the Lord to act, so too in verses 5 and 6, they say, you're going to act and we're going to come along beside you. You're going to act. We need you to do this. If you don't do this, nothing's going to happen. But when you are doing this, this is what we give ourselves to. Look at verses 5 and verse 6. They say, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And then he describes the action. He says, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So they're using this idea of this agricultural language where they say, listen, when you do this, as you are doing this, we're going to give ourselves to an investment of our energy and industry. And so we see this, this fantastic pairing of God's providence and our responsibility brought together even within the, the envelope of what it looks like to be joyous and what it looks like to be joyful. And so what is it primarily? It's entrusting ourselves to the sure promise of God. God, we need you to restore our fortunes. God, I need you to bring joy back into my life. And as you bring joy back into my life, 
I'm not going to be this person who looks at it and says, I'm satisfied for a moment, but then I move off on it. I am a person in that moment who seeks to apply your joy over the course of my life. We recognize that the Spirit gives to Christians joy. The Bible tells us in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and it is, everybody say, joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. So if you are a Christian, God's Spirit is pouring into your life joy. And in your life, joy should be a vehicle to draw and drive people to Jesus. It should be a vehicle to draw and drive people to Jesus. And so I have a responsibility in myself to take, take an assessment and say, where is the joy of the Lord not at work? In what places in my life is the joy of the Lord not at work? And so I look in the past and I see all these markers over the course of my life where he has sustained me, where he has moved miraculously. And in those, I'm basing my present and future action, my direction and my thoughts on how God has been over the course of my life and how he's revealed himself to be in his word. And so I find these areas where I'm not particularly joyous. I'm a pessimist masquerading with a joyous person's face. And so I can say, God, I recognize pessimism in my heart. I recognize the waywardness of my heart to pursue smaller joys because in reality, God, they're easier. God, they're quantifiable. God, they're things that I can seem to bring to bear. So I'm asking God to reveal these things in my heart and then I'm going through the mechanics over and over and over again when I find myself moving away from his joy, submitting myself back to it. I look to my family. Man, if you are a parent, if you are entrusted with discipling people around you, one of the things we need to be doing is showing those around us how they need to find their joy in the Lord. Not the pleasures and the trappings of this life. I think mistakenly, sometimes we teach people that, that joy is had by merely working hard. Joy is had by merely suffering in silence. Friends, joy is only ever found in the Lord. We need to drive and draw one another there, those in our families. We need to do it as a church. We need to be loving and gracious enough with one another that when we see one another speak in, in terms of, oh man, I can't wait for this to be over or that to be over, that we call one another to the mechanics of going back through and say, friend, are you finding your joy in him or your circumstance? Are you finding your joy in him or, or have you just kind of given up the idea of joy and you said 2020 is the worst? Joy pause. I'll pick joy up in 2021. I found a number of people this week describing 2020 and saying, listen, I'm not celebrating a birthday in 2020. To them, I would say, it's a little bit late. You decided late to do this. Unless you have like a late December birthday, just worthless. But anyway, nevertheless. And so in the midst of these things, they've given up on the joy of the Lord in 2020. Do you think God's joy was not available for the Israelites in the 70 years he kept them in Babylon? Do you think his joy wasn't on offer for them when they came back into the land with broken down buildings with fields that needed working, with the difficulty and the trials coming for them, his joy always stands available and ready to meet us in the midst of our difficulties. To know him is to know joy. To experience him is to experience joy. 
We need to be at work in ourselves, our family, our church, our community, and beyond. I found that no matter where I go, all over the world, people want to experience joy. They want their lives to be good. They want their lives to be, in some sense, carefree. But joy is only ever found in the person of Jesus. So from where we sit and where we stand in the midst of these things, we ask ourselves, where can we find joy? Find joy where it's always been. When Jesus' birth is heralded, In Luke chapter 2, on this hillside, Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel of the Lord said, Fear not, I bring you great news, good news of great, everybody say, joy. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Why? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The joy that stands on offer for you today is found in the person of Jesus Christ. At his appearing, the angel declared good news, great joy. It's able to be had for all people. Because this Jesus who came as a babe in a backwoods, bywater town was raised as a man fully obedient to the Lord and submitted himself in full obedience to take upon the wrath of God for your sins and for mine. And dying on the cross, he entered the grave. And three days later, God raised him again to sit at his right hand, overcoming sin and death. And in that fatal final act, he gives to you the ability to have joy unassailable. Joy uninterrupted. Joy that says to the sorrows and the difficulties of of your life, you are temporary. Joy heavenly. Joy in the midst of losing a spouse. It says, death does not win. Joy that says, and in the midst of fading health, this is not what I was made for. In the book of Revelation, John gives us once more a picture of joy's victory, a picture of joy's delight, and he answers the question of how can we maintain our joy. John picks up in chapter 19 and verse 6, he says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult. Let us be caught up in joy. Let us give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We are able to rejoice and be glad today. 
because of the good thing God has done in our past. He has anchored our joy in Christ. And he secured the direction of where we look to for the permanence of our joy to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ came in the first advent. And he's coming again. And in his coming again, we find our joy made steadfast and secure. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, our lives are bordered on one side by a memory of God's, good, of God's acts and on the other by a hope in God's promises. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you that you give joy in abundance. God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. You know, too many of us are quickly surrendering our joy. Turning to things that are more tame, turning to things that are easier. Seeking to find our joy. Some of us, God, really even just our distractions. You've created us to hunger. You've created us to thirst for you. And the joy that you have set for us is only found in you. God, your word tells us in Nehemiah 8.10 that the joy of the Lord will be our strength. So God, would you strengthen us with your joy today? Would you embolden us with your joy today? Father, we pray for any in this room or in this hearing who have yet to submit themselves to you. God, that you would show them where true joy is found. That you would show them where forgiveness and redemption is found in that, in your son Jesus Christ. How would you lead us forth in shouts of praise as we submit ourselves to you in worship? In Christ's name we pray, amen.